You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Guess what? Healing Arts Podcast has been nominated for a Coalition of Visionary Resources Award as one of the best spiritual podcasts. Thank you so much for supporting my show and for listening to the program. I would love it if you would vote for the show. And the other nominees I have this year is Past Lives in Ancient Lands and Other Worlds was nominated as the best book in past life regression. And Journeys Through the Akashic Records was nominated as one of the best self-help books. And so I've got the links below. I would love it if you would take a moment to vote for me. I would be so grateful. And if you complete the screens on the survey, hit the complete button and take a screenshot, you can email me at Shelly at ShellyCare.com and I will give you a free guided imagery journey that you can enjoy to say thank you for voting for my books and for this Healing Arts Podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. I look forward to joining you for season 15, which will be coming up soon. And in the meantime, thanks for your vote. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hey, my dear friend, I hope you're doing well. So we've got a very long and hopefully interesting show for you today. As I talk to my dear friend, Dr. Raymond Moody, we've also got another installment of Book Talk, where I am going to discuss the book Origins of Huna, Secret Behind the Secret Science, which I haven't talked about with you before. And that is the one that Dr. Raymond Moody wrote the foreword for. So we've got a busy time. Um, One of the reasons why the show is a little bit longer this week is because the first time that Dr. Moody's interview aired, it's about his book called God is Bigger Than the Bible. And this was in three parts. And so today we're just going to hear it in its entirety. I hope you enjoy it. And so let's go ahead and get started. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Book Talk. So we're here today, we're talking about some of our Audible audiobooks, and I'm here with Cassandra Arnold. So today we're going to talk about the very first book that I published back in 2001 called Origins of Huna, Secret Behind the Secret Science, 
with the foreword written by my beloved friend, Dr. Raymond Moody, who wrote the book Life After Life. So I had gone to the American Institute of Holistic Theology to study parapsychic science, which is basically energy medicine. And at the end of that, I had to write a dissertation. I wanted to write about past lives and they tell me, no, thank you. That's what everyone is writing about. You're gonna to have to do something else. And so I had taken an energy healing class called HUNA and I mentioned it to them and they said, oh, this is fantastic. Nobody's ever written about this before. So the book is about a personal journey that I went on where I studied the material that I was taught. And then I went over to the Hawaiian islands and I went island to island looking at all these sacred sites and interviewing the locals about this healing modality called HUNA. I don't wanna spoil a lot of the surprise because um, I've had a lot of readers over the years tell me they thought this was a fiction novel because there's a lot of twists here. Um, I didn't get what I expected. And then it ended up kind of changing the whole course of my adventures. But I go around the islands, I interview people. And then at the very end of the book, there's a huge surprise. Um, in the middle of that mystery novelish type uh, narrative nonfiction part, I do introduce the HUNA that I had been taught, which is a healing modality, a spiritual healing modality that was developed in the early 1900s by this man named Max Freedom Long and has a lot of followers around the world. So the technique really is very, um, it's interesting. It's, I'm very into Pythagorean healing now and it's stuff that's super simple. So it's a little bit more complicated, but it still is a really cool healing system. And so I wrote about it there, but because there's this mystery novel mixed into it, I came back a few years ago and I just wanted to write a book called Huna Basics because this is still techniques that are very, very helpful. And so if you've been interested in Huna and you wanna learn all of it and you don't wanna spend thousands of dollars, which is what I spent when I took this class, um, then I highly recommend you get these books and just check it out. Especially if you want to learn the modality, check out the Huna Basics book because I walk you right through um, things that used to cost thousands of dollars. Um, but if you want to read a, a very strange journey that I went on, um, then check it out. And, you know, it was so interesting through Divine Providence, I met Dr. Raymond Moody and he agreed to write the foreword for this book. He really loved it. One of the things I think, that's coming out of this now, now that I'm reflecting on it over 20 years later, I have got a new project coming out late in 2023 from Llewellyn that's going to get into a lot of world religions. And I think a big discussion that's in the popular culture right now has to do with how we, how we, you, me, anybody, we go into someone else's culture and we assume that we know what they're believing or thinking. And the truth is we simply don't. And so I think this might be a really interesting book for these times right now. Um, the story is kind of about, yes, going over there and actually talking to the Hawaiian people about this supposed Hawaiian modality and realizing that it was actually kind of a creation of the creator, Max Freedom Long, and then realizing that it just simply wasn't what I thought it was. And so I think this is, um, now that I think about it, it might be a very timely book. So, mm -hmm. and it is... Um, Cassandra and I talked in an earlier episode about how hard the words are in this. This is probably the worst. I mean, so I'm sure you must have been shocked and stunned, but as we're not giving away the surprises to the end and stuff, but about this weird um, story that I told, 
I can't even imagine. Your husband probably said, get rid of this lady. (laughs) So actually I had this, you know, long 15 minute back and forth with my proofer. She's the girl who, who listens to all of my work and tells me how to pronounce certain things about what the Hawaiian people call Americans or white people, basically, um, you know, I lived in Hawaii for four years. So first, let me say complete testament to you that you were able to actually kind of crack through a little bit with them. They're very, very protective of their traditions and their, you know, their, their religions and, and how they think. And um, everyone is more of an outsider, you know, so I'm amazed that you were able to do some of the things you did and find out some of the things that you found out in that book. So uh, anyway, we had this big, long argument on how to pronounce what Hawaiians call us. And I think it's, I thought it was Howleys. Is it Howleys? I thought it was Howleys. I did Is that too. not correct? Or I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Listen to the audio book and hear I know. Now I question everything because she's just insisting it was it was something else like Holly's or, you know, just that I wasn't pronouncing it correctly. And I said, you know what, I'm sticking with my original thing because I live there and I I know what I know what it sounds like. Anyway, a little side note. But um, I was just I was super impressed with that book. I thought it was a great book. I thought that I always think that your stories are interesting. You know, I'm jealous that you're so well-traveled and that you've been to all these different places. But, um, you know, the way I look at these different healing modalities, no matter how they came about, if it works for someone and it helps them, then it's good. So, you know, and again, I won't say anything either to kind of give away the twist at the end, but, um, I think the most difficult thing and the, the thing I remember the most about that book is just kind of going through the Polynesian, <laughs> going through the words and trying to make sure that I said them correctly. Cause I just knew I was going to have some angry person from Hawaii, you know, listen to it and say, that's not how we talk. <laughs> so yeah, but absolutely. other than that, no, I was, I was amazed that you were able to find out all the things that you found out in that book. It could have been, you know, I grew up in New Mexico, so, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a very diverse culture there. I was in a elementary school where I was the only Caucasian in my class and stuff, and we were bilingual classrooms. So I don't know. I just, I've just grown up around understanding we have to, we have to respect other people's culture. This is kind of like harm for me, but apparently the world is starting to catch on to it. So, well, um, obviously obviously you come across very well to different cultures because, you know, look at all these books that you've written and, and people have opened up to you about what they believe in. So the adventure continues. Yes. (laughs) All right, kids. So that's been another episode of book talk. Check out our links below and you have a great week and we'll see you next time. We'll be right back. Hey friends, would you like to heal your ancestors to heal your life? Well, you can do just that with my book by the same name that will teach you my genealogical regression process 
so that you can send love and light to your ancestors. And by learning a few simple techniques, you will begin to feel the benefits of that healing resonating through yourself and your entire family, past, present, and future. Check out my book, Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life, The Transformative Power of Genealogical Regression, today. Just go to pastlifelady.com, click on the book link, and check it out. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm Dr. Shelley Kerr. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So you know that we started this program because I wanted to meet with amazing people. And of all the people in the world who I wanted to see in the Healing Arts podcast is my doc, my friend, Dr. Raymond Moody. Um, Dr. Moody's work has been a huge impact on my life since I read his book, Life After Life, many, many years ago. That came out in 1975. Um, by the grace of God, we had a chance to work with each other. And he's got an amazing new book out that you are going to love. So Dr. Moody, it is a joy to see you and to reconnect. And I welcome you to Healing yes. Arts. Thank you, Shelley. It's just, you know, you're just such a great person. And I'm just so happy to be with you again. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. I love your new book, God is Bigger Than the Bible. It is amazing. Um, I love it. I cannot recommend Thank it enough. You. So you, you start the book out by talking about the reaction that some people had to this title and people yes. saying, what is going on with this title? You talked about your friend, Brian. So what did people think when yeah. you told them you were writing a book called God is Bigger Than the Bible? Yeah, my friend Brian, who's somebody I've known since he was 17, he was cutting the grass at our house one day, and he's sitting. I was sitting out on the porch in 2010 writing this book. So Brian came up the back steps to get a Coke from the refrigerator. So he said, what are you doing? What are you writing there, Raymond? And I said, I'm writing a book called God is Bigger Than the Bible. And Brian went just like this. Then he looked down and he said, huh? Sometimes I think his word is even greater than he is. <laughs> and if you think about that for a moment, you know, and it's, and I've had, what that title does is it creates cognitive dissonance, like where two things where you think you know clash. And um, to my astonishment, you know, many people are not able to separate the Bible from God in their mind. Right. And it becomes, it comes so severe to some people to it, to it becomes what uh, is called bibliolatry, which is like when you um, when you um, um, worship a book, right? And the book that many people worship is the Bible. And uh, but if you think about it for just a minute, you'll see. I mean, God is the being greater than which none other can be conceived. Right. And to say that the 
that God is on the par with the Bible, which is a wonderful document put together over centuries by very nice and enlightened people, I know. But, I mean, it just doesn't mesh. I mean, obviously, God is far, far, far greater than the Bible. And yet, because so many people do have that, you know, they can't really clearly separate the Bible in their minds. And to me, what this does is uh, that, you know, you can't get the two separate, God and the Bible. So, what I've, I didn't come into to God, I didn't come to God by the Bible, right? I was, my dad was not religious, and he was kind of sarcastic about religious and religions, and I kind of grew up in isolation from all of that. And um, so I came about my relationship with God through hearing people with uh, near-death experiences talk about this wonderful, compassionate, humorous educator and counselor. And um, so, so that's what I want to do in this book, is that I want to help people who who are trying to find God, but who are just turned off by organized religion or by, or by, and, and or just don't know much about the Bible. And what I'm saying in the book is you can have a just fine and glorious and deep and loving relationship with God without knowing much about the Bible and that God is not going to hold us to task or hold it against us. Um, because we don't know much about the Bible. Absolutely. And you said the book is really your personal experiences rather than you're, you're not trying to persuade people of these things, but you're just pointing it out. You mentioned the pandemic. I guess I want to talk about that for a minute and just the people, what we're all going through and people who came to you who are struggling with understanding God. So can you tell us about that well, you know, in psychiatry, which I did for a long time, and I still do counseling, and, and um, you know, it's like many people come to you for spiritual problems without really realizing their spiritual problems. And, you know, I just have met a lot of people in my practice over decades who uh, don't know what they're looking at looking for but they're obviously looking for a relationship with God but they don't even have the words to put that together or so on and you can't just you can't just bring this up to them right like because you know they'll think of it as preaching or you're trying to convert them or something but um there are ways to um you know to to be on a spiritual basis with people and lead them without trying to impose any sort of religion on them and um you know it's like when somebody asks me which people often do it's like raymond do you believe that god exists i say no absolutely not what (laughs) yeah because and then i go on to explain that i raymond moody am a limited human being and any any um belief that I could formulate about God would be bound to be off base in some dimension or other. Um, And plus, if you think about that sentence, do you believe that God exists? Well, the emphasis of that sentence is on the word exist. And as a professor of logic, which I did for quite a while, I could could take you through a process, take about an hour 
but I can show you what it means to say that something exists and even how to symbolize that. But it, when it comes to God, I just give up. You know what I mean? I, right. What I say is I have a relationship with God and the question of existence doesn't even arise. I know quite a number of people in my life who have one of their main ways of dealing with God or relating to God or in main God related activity is to wonder or argue or try to reason out whether God exists. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to take a very limited human concept, namely the concept of existence and draw us that as a circle around God. Well, you just can't do it. What I say is God is greater than existence itself. And to allow yourself to be limited in your relationship with God by this, this logical concept of existence, to me, that's just ridiculous. I, you know, it's, uh, does God exist? Well, the question doesn't even arise in my mind because it's like the, the, the question of existence doesn't apply to God or non-existence. The, the, the concept isn't even applicable because God is greater than even existence itself. You know, I, I totally agree with your whole take on that because I've always said that how, I don't know where I read this many years ago, but it was talking about the fact that the machine itself aka us we cannot possibly mm -hmm. understand ourselves because we're yeah. in our own bodies That's and right. so you're right how are we going to understand the under the non-understandable it makes That's complete right. sense and uh, you know since 1965 i've talked with probably thousands and thousands of people with near-death experiences who who you know from their point of view they actually were with god and in the presence of right. god and that is, and what the most common thing people say about that is that no matter how articulate or well-educated or they are, or how many languages they speak, they say there are no words that this is just, it's ineffable or indescribable. And I, I would say the same thing about myself. In 1991, I had a, I was going through a really tough time and I had a a personal experience of encounter with God. And I know what people are talking about you. I mean, it's something that totally is beyond anyone's ability to even begin to put it into words in a way that would um, um, make anybody else understand it. This complete compassion and just complete understanding and, uh, it's really remarkable. And yet it seems to me that the data that you've been studying since the 70s and the interviews that you've done with people who have had these experiences, that would be more proof of God really than any written book, as you said, like a book that's written by man, although it may yeah. be wonderful. How could that be as powerful as the face-to-face -face encounters that people who you've interviewed have had? I mean, they're not comparable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think um, one thing I've observed about many people, uh, Shelley, and I'm sure you have too, is that so many people are just terrified to say, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, um, when I was seven or eight years old, I've been curious all my life. 
I had two doctoral degrees before I was 31 years old, a PhD in philosophy and an MD degree. Plus three of those years, I'd been a philosophy professor. So anybody at our age, you know, that you're younger than me, but you, you know, within that category of being able to realize that there's something terribly wrong with somebody who would have two doctoral degrees by the age of 39. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I, my whole life was my nose in a book. But when I was seven or eight and I looked through a telescope for the first time, I realized that with as curious as I was, I was never going to know much of anything compared to the cosmic scale. So I have just always been very satisfied and completely, you know, fine with saying, I don't know. To me, that was going to be my state of life from I realized early in life. And that, that that's not troubling to me. And yet I can understand too how many people who are raised in a severe education where they're taunted or criticized for not being able to answer a question or to, or to think they have to know everything, then they can resort to ideologies, you know, where they, they've got to have an answer to everything. And I can sort of, I try to imagine what that must be like. And it just, it must be pretty distressful to have to think, you know, to think, have to know that you feel like you know everything. I mean, I feel sorry for those people. I mean, I have my own hangups and neuroses, which are pretty terrible too. But I mean, that's one I've never, I've just never got. I mean, why? And, and so then when it gets into some religion, you know, I mean, it's like some narrow religion. People have to act this way like they know all this when the rest of us can kind of look at that and they they doth protest too much right i mean right somebody who comes on like that well i know it all it's like and they're trying to convince you well that's a giveaway that deep down they're not sure of themselves but if they just act so confident and can kind of cow you into um thinking that they know then maybe they imagine, I suppose, that if they could get you to mouth the same formulas, that will make them feel better and will satisfy this inner disturbance they have, which really means that they don't know either. They don't know any more than you or I do. And um, I've seen, you know, I mean, then from the deep south, I've seen all my life, it's like there's a certain kind of person who uses the Bible as a cudgel right to right. try to get everybody else in line with them and um but you know i mean let's be normal human beings and sympathetic human beings most of those bible fanatics if, if you just question i don't mean harshly but if you just question them very gently right you can quickly see they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> i mean you know it's it's just like it's a rhetorical device that they are trying to get everybody else to conform to their worldview. And so it's amusing in one way and terrifying in another. I mean, you know, they can try to get their will wrought on the school board to teach, you know, some religious doctrine in science classes or whatever. So, I mean, there's two sides of it. But what I say is this. I know enough about the Bible to know that I don't know much about the Bible. 
Yes. And uh, I think that a lot of people um, don't know enough about the Bible to know that they don't know much about the Bible. <laughs> the, the way I think about it is um, I was 18 years old. I'm 76 now. And I was 18 years old when I fell in love with ancient Greek philosophy. And I have assiduously studied ancient Greek philosophy continually since I was 18 years old. Well, and I still say at page 76, there is far, far, far more about ancient Greek philosophy than I don't know than I do. And I've studied the Bible enough to understand that the same thing would be true of the Bible, right? I mean, it right. takes a lifetime of study to, you know, even get a little bit of knowledge on that. So to Absolutely. me, it's like, I call it Bible abuse. It's like Bible abuse to me is a, is a spiritual illness. And uh, it's kind of like it's, uh, it's using the Bible as a cudgel to get everybody else in line with your beliefs. And, uh, and, and as I said, I think if you, if you just question them gently, you'll see they, they don't know any more than you and I do. But, you know, they, they, they are forced and compelled into this rigid kind of point of view to um, guess in an attempt to get everybody else in step with their own minds. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue talking to Dr. Raymond Moody about some of his other work and more on his new book, God is Bigger Than the Bible. We'll be right back. Thank you, sweetie. We'll be right back. Hey friends, guess what? My new book, Past Lives in Ancient Lands and Other Worlds, Understand Your Soul's Journey Through Time is out and available. And you can order this book and visit ancient civilizations, including prehistory hunter-gatherers, Mesopotamia, Babylon, the Persian Empire, Egypt, Greece, Europe, the Americas, Rome, Asia, and Australia, and travel into other worlds, including Atlantis and Lemuria, outer space, and so much more. This book features over 50 guided journeys to help you understand your soul's journey through time. So check it out. Visit my website, pastlifelady.com. Click on the book link and order Past Lives in Ancient Lands and Other Worlds today. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. You can visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com.
Welcome back to Healing Arts. I've got my amazing special guest and special friend, Dr. Raymond Moody with me. So his book, God is Bigger Than the Bible, is incredible and you need to check it out. So one of the things you talk about in the book, Dr. Moody, is the fact that God participates in our interpersonal relationships. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a long time ago, um, I had the privilege of taking Dr. Moody's psychomantion training based on his amazing book reunions where we go and we have visionary encounters with our deceased loved ones and you know as a hypnotherapist i guide people into places in their mind where they can have these experiences but you've created this process by which we build an actual physical structure and people have real experiences and that training was one of the most amazing that i've ever been through in my life and there is where I met um, a friend from the Edgar Casey Foundation. And then I went on to become friends with them and write some books for them. And so, uh-huh. you know, it speaks to what you're talking about in the book through some of your stories, which I want you to share here, how we meet certain people and then they lead us down paths that we were perhaps meant to go down in order to connect with people who we were destined probably to meet. Yeah. yeah. And you talk about your house and you'd had this vision of this certain kind of home that you wanted to live and how it kind of manifested itself years later. So I was wondering if you could share the story of your gristmill. Yes, this is a long story, but I was um, back in my uh, uncle Fairley was the chief law enforcement officer of a little town in Georgia for 30 years. Matter of fact, when Fairley retired, they had to hire three officers to take his place. So I I come from sort of a law enforcement family, a lot of relatives and all. And so one day in 1964, um, Fairley was going his rounds and I was riding with him. That was all back then. It was, you know, no no big deal. And so, um, so he was riding through a very remote area out in the country and we came across this old grist mill. And for the young people, what that is, it's a big building with a wheel on the outside turned by water that they had a stone inside and they would ground ground, uh, corn and um, wheat and to flour, right? So in the middle of nowhere, just saw this place and I immediately fell in love. I said, oh, that's great. That's where I want to live. And so for the next several summers, I looked all over Georgia for old grist mills. And uh, I realized that, you know, there's few and far between and the people who own them don't want to sell them, right? So I'd sort of surrendered that. And in the meantime, I, uh, in 1965 at University of Virginia, I got to know Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry at um, the University of Virginia at that time. And I had heard about near-death experiences from reading about them in Plato several years before, but George was the first living person I ever heard this story from. And uh, it just changed my life in 1965. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that George Ritchie was real. And he was, um, to this day, he was just the greatest, he was the finest person I ever knew. And uh, so, George's experience took place at Camp Barkley, Texas in December 1943 when he was a uh, recruit in the Army, okay? And my mother and father are from Porterdale, Georgia, and George was from Richmond, Virginia, so... 
Wow. Anyway, went through graduate school and, and as, as a philosophy professor and later medical student, I was gathering all these cases of near-death experiences. And um, in uh, 1960 and 1975, or early 76, I graduated from medical school at the Medical College of Georgia. And so I decided to go back to Charlottesville, Virginia, to do my psychiatry residency up there. Okay. And when by my book, Life After Life, was published in November of 75, right? And I dedicated it to George Ritchie. That was the only link I'd had with him all those years was I called him and asked him if I could dedicate my book to him. So in uh, night in graduated from medical school in January of 76 and went up to Charlottesville in March of 1976 to um, interview for my psychiatry residency. So as long as we were there, I just called Dr. Ritchie and just said hello. And so he was very nice and said, well, come on over to dinner tonight. So we had a great meeting. Then the next day, we flew back to Macon, Georgia, where my parents lived. And um, so that night I was sitting in my mom and dad's den, just talking with my dad. And I just casually mentioned that the night before I had been with this Dr. George Ritchie, who was the first living person I heard this near-death experience from. Wow. And so by then my father had heard a tape of George Ritchie's experience. And so I can tell you exactly what my father said, the exact words, because number one, it was extraordinary. And second, because I understood by then as a, in my studies of psychiatry that when people get anxious, they develop what's called telegraphic speech. It sounds like they're talking in a telegram. And so when I mentioned Dr. Ritchie, dad said, huh, George, that's, that's really interesting. George Ritchie. Camp Barkley, Texas, December, 1943. He said, you know, I was there and so were you. And what had happened was unbeknownst to me, my mom and dad had moved from Porterdale in early September, 1943, so that my dad could go to officer's candidate school. George, I was conceived in late September, 1943. George's experience took place in uh, December 24th, I think it was, 1943. And my mom and dad moved away from Camp Barkley back to Porterdale in, um, in, in uh, December 29th, 1943. So I was there in utero when this experience took place, Unbelievable. which changed my life. Now, now flash forward. Years later, I was a professor of psychology at West Georgia College in, uh, in Carrollton, Georgia. And this was 1989. And I had been, I realized the, um, I sort of discovered the thing about the psychomantion you were talking and I needed, I'd done some of it and I needed a place out in the country to do some research and writing. And, um, 
So, but I looked all around Carrollton, but the prices there were just out of reach because this was near Atlanta with real estate uh, market like it was. And I just couldn't afford anything that I found. So I was kind of discouraged. And in November of 1989, I walked into the psychology department office one afternoon and Nancy Gillespie, who was the psychology department secretary, said, you know, Raymond, she said, if you just go right across the state line into Alabama, she said, you know, it's just 11 miles. And she said, over there, the real estate values, are just, you would be amazed. You'll be able to find a place that you can, you can afford. And so, as you know, Shelley, but maybe many people don't, but I have no sense of direction, right? You always had to drive around. I don't know. I never know where I am. <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't have that kind of mind. Right. So I called a friend of mine, Robin, who lived in Atlanta, but she was from Alabama and she was a real estate agent. And I said, Robin, would you find me a place over in Alabama? I didn't say where. I didn't say anything about an old grist mill. I had given that up years before. I just said, I want to find, my only criteria was, it's a place out in the country where, you know, I, it's kind of rural area and that, um, that it's, uh, it's close enough to the state line where I could get back and forth three times a week to do my teaching. So in January of 1990, one evening, she called me up. She said, Raymond, can you go to Alabama tomorrow? And I said, well, sure. I didn't know where we were going. And she, she didn't even tell me because she knew I wouldn't compute with me anyway. I just, it, my criteria was it had to be close enough. So on the way over there, she said the reason why she was going to this particular county was that her son's best friend was a, the chief law enforcement officer of this little area. And so, or the chief deputy, and uh, that he had read my book and that he was willing to take the day off and to take us around this little county. And, and so anyway, we got there and the sheriff was uh, taking us along this old country road. And I saw this little Victorian cottage with a sign out front for sale. And I said, oh, that's a beautiful place. And so uh, Don, the sheriff, looked at the sign and he said, oh, the, the real estate agent's name on there was Kirk Moore. And he said, oh, Kirk is a good friend of mine. Let's go to his office right now. This was in the era before cell phones. Okay. So <laughs> Don, the sheriff, just took us up to Kirk Moore's office. And um, I said, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm interested in that little Victorian cottage you have for sale. And I'm, I was standing up in Kirk's office and I was sort of looking at him from the side and he, uh, he said, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm looking for a place out in the country to do some research and writing. And I saw Kirk's eyes like go up and he said, well, let me take you by a place near where I live. So we down this long country road across this old trestle bridge to an old grist mill. Oh and you know, I thought, I, I mean, I, am I dreaming or what? And so <laughs> Kirk said, well, you know, he said, the reason I'm showing, he said, actually, it's not for sale. He said, but the reason I'm showing it to you is that the elderly couple that lived there, Captain and Miss Dore, 
they had raised their family and their kids had moved out of town. This is way out in the middle of nowhere then. And so, so um, they had raised their kids and their kids had moved into town. And so the kids who went to Kirk's church were worried about their parents living alone out in this old gristmill that was built in 1839 out in the middle of this you know, country area. So Kirk said that they had asked him whether they, he could possibly try to ease their parents out of the gristmill. So we went back to Kirk's office and just, you know, saw the gristmill then went because there were no cell phones, right? <laughs> so we went back to Kirk's office and he called Mrs. Door in my hearing and he said, Ms. Door, I've got this man from out of town and um, he, you know, can I bring him in my see your house and I heard her she talks pretty loud she said you can Kirk but we're not gonna sell our house we love this place so so back in the car back out back across the bridge and back to the old mill and so I went in and I grew, took Miss Doors hand and shook her hand and I said my my name is Raymond Moody and she said Raymond Moody Raymond Moody she said are you the man that wrote that book? And um, she led me to the, the bookcase beside the fireplace. I could show you the exact place. And she drew out George Ritchie's book to which I had written the foreword. And she put it in my hand and opened it to his inscription to them. And she said, well, you know, Dr. George Ritchie is one of our dear, dear friends. She said, this must be a sign. So that's okay. how I got my gristmill. And um, you know that, that George, I think that God, you know that some, my thought is that we can, I feel like my relationship with George Ritchie began before I was even born, when I was yes. in, in utero, right? And then there've been other things like that too, where just at, critical moments of my life, George Ritchie just sort of magically appears. So I think it's amazing. Do you think that we, um, through God's help, that we're glimpsing future events? God's kind of dropping a few clues and a few breadcrumbs so that when we do, like in your case, get to the grist mill, we go, wow, I can't believe this. I haven't thought of this in years, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, and again, I we just don't understand that up. That's yeah. right. I had given that up. I just thought it was unrealistic. And then, you know, but God had a different idea and he led me there. And I, you know, I think that um, in philosophy, uh, a, as you know, Shelley, one of the great philosophical questions is, what are we? I mean, what is the nature of your personal identity? And uh, in the West, it was really Plato who got it started kind of. It's like the, that our actual essential identity is the immaterial soul. Right. And that um, the body, Plato said, that's just like a garment or that you cast that off. And it's unreal anyway, but you're the actual you is your immaterial soul and, and which is immortal. And then that sort of stuck. And then it was sort of doctrine. You, I guess you could be sent to the stake in the Middle Ages for denying that. 
But then once things loosened up a little bit, it got to be Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher said, well, you know, there's something wrong with the notion of an immaterial soul. I mean, what does it mean? It's like <clears throat> people question what it even meant. And then John Locke, who was the English philosopher who had a lot to do with our constitution, got to thinking about it. And he said, what constitutes us is our memories, right? That you are your yourself is your memories. And, um, but where I have come to on that philosophical question is, I think that we are our stories. You know, a lot of li people listening to this are too young to remember who Ellie Wiesel was, but you probably remember. He was back in the sixties, he was a Nobel prize winning author, literary, literary figure, and he had been to Auschwitz and survived, and he was just a very kind and wonderful and deep man, and in one of Elie Wiesel's books, I read the following statement, God made man because he loves stories, and I think that's right. What are we but our story? You know, it's your essential self-identity is the story. Even your consciousness is geared to make a narrative, right? Like what happens whenever some new event takes place in your life? What do you do? Your mind integrates it into your continuing story, right? right. So consciousness is narrative-based. Human consciousness is to spin a story. And back in um, a year... I was doing as a geriatric psychiatrist. I was um, I was older when I was doing my psychiatry residency because I'd been through the PhD in philosophy route and I'd also um, been three years a philosophy professor. So I was older than the other guys. Plus I was known for this book. So in this town, they, they needed to have somebody to man the what you call the vip clinic right because you know the the mayor or the chief of police or the people on the city council or the local celebrities they can't present themselves to the front door of the psychiatric clinic like the rest of us peons right, right. they gotta be sneaked in the back <laughs> so for this wonderful year i was talking with the elderly movers and shakers of this little town and um you know, they were there mostly for situational stress or just to have somebody to talk to out of loneliness or whatever. So it was wonderful for me. And I would just repeatedly during that year, I heard the same reflect. And these were reflective people, you know, looking back on their lives. And they said, Raymond, the older I get, the more this uncanny impression develops that my whole life has been a play or a story or a movie or a whatever the, you know, different words. But um, yeah. then I heard uh, Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, make the same remark on one of his tapes too. And so I've just come to see, and I've heard this from people all over the world, that the older you get, the more, when you look back at your life, you see it's, it's like a story or a narrative. So that's what I think we are. I think that we are God's stories. And I think that Elie Wiesel was right. He said, you know, yeah. man, God made man because he loves stories and we are God's stories. And um, so that's where I've come. And I think you have too on this one. I just, uh, yeah. 
uh, I just think, you know, what happens is we finish one story and then we go through this incomprehensible process and then we're back on another storyline, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. So we're going to take a break, friends. And when we come back, we're going to continue with God is Bigger Than the Bible with our friends, Dr. Raymond Moody. We'll be right back. Hey friends, have you wanted to access the Akashic Records but had no idea how to do that? Well, guess what? My new book, Journeys Through the Akashic Records, will take you step by step through the process so that you can access other realms of consciousness for your own healing and transformation. This book will show you how to open the door to this wellspring of information, meet with your spirit guides, do present life healing, psychic protection, go out into the field of possibilities to access your higher soul's purpose, meet your guides and helpers, your soul group, and so much more. Again, over 50 guided journeys await you as you access the Akashic Records and receive information that is personal to you for your healing and self-transformation. Check out the book now. Just go over to my website, pastlifelady.com. Click on the book link and order today. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm Dr. Shelley Care, and I'm with the amazing one in a million, Dr. Raymond Moody. We're talking about his new book, God is Bigger Than the Bible. And there's so much good material here. I love this book. One of my favorite parts of the book, uh, Dr. Moody, is this, this question. You're telling a story, basically. You're talking about the problem of evil and the fact that people wonder well why do bad things happen then if there is a god and you tell a story or you ask readers well what would you do if you were stranded on an island and you could take dvds so could you tell us about this because it's a great point yeah 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 i've i've asked thousands of people this question it's not one-on-one -on -one, but in audiences now for years and years and uh Basically, the scenario, scenario I set up for people is I say, suppose you develop some terrible infection that required you to be isolated all by yourself on an island for 10 years, and they could send you out there with a cargo plane in a cargo plane that had room for all the food and water and medicine you're going to need for 10 years. And there was some extra room in the cargo hold where they could put a DVD player and let's say 5,000 DVDs, right? Or 10,000. And so what I ask people is, would you choose all comedies? Think about it. Out of the thousands of people I've asked, only three people have ever said yes. 
Most people say, no, of course not. And then I say, well, would you choose some tragedies too? And they say, well, sure. And I say, well, then when you were all by yourself on that desert island, watching that tragedy, would you be crying? And they say, well, sure, because that's the experience of tragedy, right? And um, so what I'm getting at is that I think this thing we're in, which is kind of a theater in my opinion, is kind of that structure. You know, we come in here knowing that we're gonna be um, experiencing some bad things, but it's like, I have this wonderful little native, not so little anymore, she's grown, but I still, she, you know, she's still my baby, little Native American daughter who's 20, adopted at birth, a Blackfeet Indian, who's and plainly an Indian from the time she came to us. She's, whew, you know, no contact with the culture, but she is an Indian. And she, uh, she loves roller coasters. And I, I've said, you know, I don't like roller coasters myself, but I've been, I've stood in lines with her for a long period of time, you know, waiting an hour or more to get on a roller coaster. And I look at all those people and I say, well, you know, they full well know that when they're upside down at 90 miles an hour, they're going to be screaming and yelling and wanting out of there, right? And yet they line up on the roller coaster. And I think that's kind of how we are. It's just like, um, if, if imagine the state of consciousness, before we come here, where we know that we're going to be seeing some stressful things. And I ask people, for example, the plague is going on right now, or right. Of a, a, a terrible uh, pandemic. But ask yourself, if you know before you come in here that you've got, say, 10,000 DVDs to watch or 10,000 lives to leave, would you, knowing in that other, that other state, would you choose to have a lifetime to witness a pandemic? I sure would. I mean, they're fascinating to read about in history, but now we got a front row seat, right? Yeah, So my point is, but even knowing full well that in the midst of it, we're going to be terrified and wishing we weren't there. But from that other perspective, we know that we're going to make it through, see? So it's kind of like we're, we're putting ourselves into an educational situation. It's like, I loved medical school and it's a lot of fun, but there's a lot of horrors about it too. But you go into medical school knowing that there's gonna be some pretty difficult stuff because you know that if someone you come out on the other side, it's, you'll be a better person for it. I totally agree with that. Every time you struggle and then you, you know, overcome, you do feel better about that. That's and I also agree about the pandemic. I mean, this is horrible. There's been a lot of tragedy, but it is really a fascinating time to be alive. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah. And this is history that will be remembered for a long time. I was, when I was a kid, I was a stamp collector. And I remember looking through my grandmother Walton's stack of old postcards and she just in her accumulated stuff. And I was interested in the stamps, but I remember this one postcard she had written and had a green George Washington one cent stamp on it. But the card was a postcard she had sent to her father who was out of town on a business trip. And she was saying, Mr. Jones next door died and, you know, Miss, Miss Sweetener across the street died and 
you know, just like in that little brief message, five or six people in the neighborhood who had died. And I remember I was seven or eight. I remember reading that and just trying to imagine what that is like. Well, you know, now we know, and, and thank God, I mean, I'm breathing such a sigh of relief with the vaccines that it's like, I'm not worried so much about me, but I don't want to have any trouble breathing, right? But, but right. it's like my main worry was my kids, right? But now they're, they both had their first shots, but, um, you know, life is interesting. And if you go into it, knowing that you're going to come out of it alive, you might choose some things that when you're in the midst of them, you're kicking and screaming, but, but then also there's this kind of mechanism when you step across that line, you forget all you know, right? It's like Plato pointed that out. He said it's called the, he called it the waters of forgetfulness. He said that just before you come in here, he said, there are these patterns that are, it's kind of like it describes almost a screen or something and where it displays all these different kinds of patterns of lives that you could choose. And, um, but then he said, you drink of the waters of forgetfulness and forget. And, and so um, that in psychology, that's called an event boundary. It's like when you're in your living room and you want to get something out of the kitchen, you stand up and you walk into the kitchen. But as soon as you walk into the kitchen, you forgot what you came in there for. It's a common human experience. Yeah, and Plato, Plato said that's how it is when we come here. And because it would certainly be upsetting to try to negotiate this very complicated life that we're in with all this other stuff coming in he said it's like the life we're leading here is like we're like a horse with blinders and so it keeps all this other stuff out so we can concentrate on the task at hand you know along these lines what i've thought about lately is if we if we do feel that we're connected with a higher power god and that we are going to go on from here if we could have a real feeling of that then we really shouldn't be afraid of what's going to happen to us during a pandemic because we should have the awareness that we are infinite beings and that we're going to leave here and just you know go into the cosmic soup Mm -hmm. or whatever so what do you think about that well i think that that is certainly appealing from this context but i don't think it would be appealing to the point of view of somebody coming into this place well yeah because uh you know it's like um it's life comes at you relentlessly you know, it's like you get immersed in it and I can, I can have all these thoughts and I can sort of stand back and I can realize, yeah, this is a play, like an illusory thing we're in, like a theater, and this is a movie, but then some personal annoyance intrudes, right? The dog barks or, you know, and that's the way life comes at you. It's just like relentless. And so even though you can attain the state of consciousness where you can see the dramatic or story-like structure of it, that it doesn't let you do that. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Something comes along and then you're immediately immersed in it. But what I found is that if you get, keep having this flash, right, again and again, oh yeah, this is a story, Eventually, it gets to the point where it becomes more or less continuous. So you can develop this kind of bilateral or bi-level 
consciousness where even when the tough things are going on, you say, oh, yeah, well, this is just a story, but it doesn't help the feelings. You still feel right. distressed and all, but, but you still can I think attain that, that um, insight into the story um, nature of it. But, you know, it wouldn't be a, as interesting an experience if you went through it knowing it was a story, right? I mean, if you had that consciousness all the time, that would, yeah. I don't think I would like that state of consciousness. No, it would be boring or something. I don't yeah, know. or it's just like, what's the point kind of, but when you really get immersed in it, that makes it a lot more, you're a lot more engaged. Yeah, I feel like I'm in that state now, but, you know, I started this particular podcast um, as a reaction to the pandemic because, of course, we were all locked up. And I certainly didn't feel like that when this first began. We're all locked yeah, up. Man. We're terrorized. We don't know what this thing's going to do to anyone. And yeah. there was I did. You know, I try not to experience deep feelings of fear, but we all have had fear and panic and uncertainty mm. and all kinds yes. of unwanted emotions that, like you said, it's happening because That's we're trying right. to do our best, but yet life is going to start just throwing things at us. And it certainly has thrown it at us this last year. And the other thing I thought was so interesting, you know, historically, is that because we're so connected through the internet, through um, the ability to travel around the world on airplanes and things like that, we've never had a time in history where we've all really been going through something together with that's every right. other person on earth don't you think that's amazing and profound it is it is as i said you know what a show and and you know that <laughs> sounds so harsh in a way because i was terrified too yeah you know and and you know terrified more about my kids yes and so this is a lot more um you know now i can since I've been vaccinated, I've had both of my vaccinations and the kids have had their first vaccination. My wife is vaccinated. You know, I, it makes it a lot more, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's still unpleasant, but it's, you don't have that stress and anxiety. Right. But, you know, I remember reading many books about the plague of Athens or the Black Plague or all these yeah. just, and, and, in my interest in epidemiology, I would read these books like it's gripping. And now, you know, it's it's not they're reading a history book anymore. It's looking at it from the point of view of, of a participant. Yeah, that's a totally different reality. So mm -hmm. I think I was scared about if I am sick and I don't know it, and then I'm going to spread that to other people, that terrorized yeah. me. Because I thought, you know, I've spent a lot of time working on my karma, Raymond. I don't want to rack up anymore, if you know what I mean. And that just drove Same me here. Same know? here. You know, it's, it's like the funny thing, Shelley, about this idea of the happiest life is to love other people yes. and take in as serve other people you you first hear that when you're young is as an ideal right and then for some people as you grow older it becomes kind of an aspiration but eventually as you live older it just becomes a fact of experience because um you know the fact is what makes you happiest is when you're serving other people i mean you you just learn that by experience because ego you know as, as long as you're trying to focus on yourself and it's all about you then you're always miserable my formula is ego equals pain 
right? Whenever your ego is involved, there's always some, um, you know, unpleasant or painful aspect of it. And then, you know, eventually when you get to the point of view where you can lose yourself and just get interested in helping other people, that's when you're happy. Absolutely. And it's not anything ideal or, you know, or aspirational. It's just, it's just how you, you learn that from experience just by living. I completely agree. You know, one of the great things that you and your wife, Cheryl, did in my mind was when you adopted your kids, Carter and Carol Ann. And in the book, you have a beautiful section about a vision you had, again, kind of like your grist mill, where several yeah. years ago, you just had this vision. I want yeah. to have a Native American daughter. So would you share that? I thought, I just thought it was another yes. example of God working in your life. Yes, I had um, in uh, the spring of 1981 or 82, I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia. I had two wonderful sons, um, Avery, who's now a um, a physician and a, as a medical director of a prison in Georgia, and Sam, who's now grown and is a professor of Spanish linguistics, but at the time they were just kids, right? And so I was sitting on the back porch that night in my swing, and I had always wanted a girl, you know, but, but my wife, she had had trouble with the last pregnancy, so we thought, you know, it's really not advisable for her to get pregnant again so and I don't know where this daydream it really was a daydream it came to me it was very vivid and my thought was wouldn't it be wonderful to adopt a Native American daughter right and I mean I don't know where it came from but it was very heartfelt and I dwelled on it a long time that night just kind of imagining it and so then I just let it go I mean you know but then that was in um, spring of 81 or 82. Now, flash forward 19 years later, um, I was living in Las Vegas where I was a professor out there at that time. And my wife and I had adopted about two years before this uh, son, Carter, who's uh, Mexican-American by heritage. And we, again, we adopted Carter at the moment of his birth. We were there. And... Um, so this was t- the year 2000, Carter was two years old. And, uh, but several years before, I think it was 1996, I had been out in New Mexico lecturing and um, I was sitting in the audience just before my lecture and the previous lecturer was at the podium. And so the previous lecture finished his lecturer finished his lecture and he asked for questions and it was one of these arrangements where you had a microphone in the middle aisle and to ask your question you had to go around and line up and talk into the microphone to ask your question so sitting next to me on my right was this obviously native american woman and she obviously she wanted to ask a question but you could tell from her body language she was just you know, she just, I guess, a little shy, just, just conflicted a minute. So my wife, Cheryl, sitting on my left side, just punched me and pointed that out. So I took up this lady, Christine, a Blackfeet lady, and I just escorted her around as anybody would to, to ask her question. And I stood there to, and with her while she asked her question. 
Okay, that was in 1996. All right, now flash forward to 2000. Uh, Carter is two years old. And so out of nowhere one day, Christine calls up and, oh, how are you doing? I remember her cheerful voice. And um, I, I said, oh, we're doing great. You know, we, we've adopted a baby. And she said, oh, I wish so much I had known you were looking because, she said, on the reservation, I work in the hospital and I'm the first person to know when we have a situation coming up uh, where, you know, we need adoptive parents. So I said, by all means, a few weeks later, she called me, your daughter is on her way. And uh, so, you know, that's how Carol Ann came around. And um, then when she was, yes, when she was some years older, we were, she, from the very beginning, she liked to go on long walks. I guess it comes from her ancestry. And we lived way out in the country. And she, um, she um, would um, uh, love to go and collect little animals and plants and her nature bag, as she called it. So this one day she said, I want to find a snail. And I said, well, okay. So we went looking for a snail, looked all under the creek, and just everywhere, no snail. But on the way back home, just getting close to home, I heard this voice behind me, wow, yay. And I turned around and she had found in the dirt a little snail about maybe a quarter of an inch in diameter, which was the same color as the dirt, like really dark, you know, that same color. She found the snail and she, held it up like this and she said, God makes your dream come true. And my mind went back to that oh. night on the porch in Charlottesville and I thought, well, he sure does. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just love that. And you talked about how Carol Ann was very um, kind of profound and she told you how she picked you and how she came here. Um, she it, did, when she was nine so years old. Amazing. On one of our walks, she was walking. There was this old wooden bridge about an hour from about a mile from our house, right? And so um, she liked to sit on that old wooden bridge and just talk. And this one day, she was nine years old, and she out of nowhere she said, "I don't like this place," which obviously she was talking about the world. And so I was kind of saying, uh, and by the way, I'm, you know, trained in psychiatry, you tend not to react, right? You just don't want to shape people. So I just said, oh, uh, and she said, yeah, you know, she said, um, when you die, you just go up and you be with God and he holds you up there. She said, till all the people, you know, while you're alive have died. And then he sends you back as another person. And I said, well, what makes you think so? And she said, I just know in my mind, pointing like that. And she said, and I was with God and he pointed you out to me. And he said, you got to go down to be his daughter. And I said, well, how did you feel about that? And she said, oh, I didn't want to do it. She said, I wanted to stay <laughs> with my God, she said. But he pushed me. He pushed me down to be your daughter. 
that is just absolutely profound. It is. And at the same time, it's, you know, I know a lot of people listening to this have had these same kinds of experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to me, this is the proof of God that we're talking about, the, the proof that's as close that we can get. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, that's right. It's totally and it's agree. even beyond proof. I mean, in the sense that, you know, there's it's just it, you don't even have to go through a process of thinking it out, really. Right. It's just obvious. Yeah, that's your personal relationship with God. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. That is amazing. So I've got to ask one more thing because you have you have so much in this book. Friends, please, you've got to get this book. We will have Thank the links you. below. Um, you do have an amazing chapter. I know you enjoy studying the works of Lewis Carroll, yeah. Alice in Wonderland, and mm -hmm. talking about the idea of there's wisdom in nonsense. And you do have a yes. chapter called God and Dr. Seuss. And it just seems yes. very timely with all the crazy cancel culture nonsense yeah, that's going yeah. on. So I was wondering if you could tell us about how you believe God speaks to us through nonsense and any thoughts you have about Dr. Seuss in specifics. Yes, I was, um, I had two experiences occurred together when I was about seven or eight years old that has really pretty much shaped the rest of my life. And one was that uh, I was an astronomy buff. And I went, I remember this one night I was looking through my telescope and I had this thought, a lot of people listening to this have had this same experience where you start wondering, well, how big is this thing we're in, right? So your mind goes out to the wall, right? But then you think, just a minute here, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of a wall, right? Right. So it doesn't make any sense to say that it ends in a wall. But then on the other hand, the only other option seems to be able to be that it just goes on forever and ever without any limit. But that doesn't make any sense either. So right. when I was about seven or eight, I realized, as many people have, that we live in a block of nonsense, right? I mean, this doesn't <laughs> make any sense, this thing. Works. But that didn't trouble me because my favorite authors at that time were uh, Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and Dr. Seuss and also Edward Lear. People don't know him as well, but he was a great nonsense poet too. And I just loved nonsense. So I thought nonsense was a good thing. And to me, it's not a bad word, but a good word. And it's, you know, this people love nonsense. Um, a lot of people listening to this will probably be old enough to remember doo-wop music, right? Yeah. I get a job, you know, it's like, or, or playground rhymes that people remember, like one bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight back to back. They faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A blind man came to see the fray. A dumb man came to shout hooray. A deaf policeman heard the noise and came and killed those two dead boys. Well, that's a playground rhyme that many people remember and have good memories. Right. Or if you love uh, um, Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald and scat scene, mm. which is just nonsense, yes. right? But it just transports you. So um, always nonsense has been a good thing to me. So I just, um, in my 
God is bigger than the Bible, the last chapter talks about this, um, this the spiritual dimension of nonsense. You think of um, glossolalia in the Christian tradition or talking in unknown tongues, which is yes. nonsense syllables drawn from the speaker's native language, but put together without grammar or without meaningful combinations. So if you keep doing it, you really enter into a profound ecstatic state. Or koans like, what, a, uh, what is the sound of one hand clapping, which is a nonsense question, but once you just keep thinking about it, it eventually pops you over into a, you know, another state of consciousness. And um, yes. so, and I think many people I've let, I've lectured on nonsense since I was a philosophy professor. I even had a full semester length course on the literature and the spiritual and the, um, psychological dimensions of nonsense and um so and, and many people will have very specific events in their lives once they start thinking about it where nonsense really made a big impact on them and my favorite is uh, in terms of my son carter um carter was born on july 20th 1998 and um we would, my wife was there for the birth. She was the first person to hold him. Um, oh, when the obstetrician great. delivered Carter, she just handed him to my wife, uh, Cheryl. And so, um, and so we had, the, Carter is Mexican-American by heritage. We had been down the previous April to get to know the fam. And so, you know, the baby stays in the hospital for three days. That's the routine. And so on three days when, later, when Carter was discharged from the hospital, we went with Carter's birth family, uh, Carter's birth mother and her parents, um, and Cheryl and Carter in his little baby seat and me, we all went to this um, uh, barbecue restaurant there in Texas. And so, the gist of the conversation during lunch was that Carter will always know his birth family and that in the fullness of time, we will get together again. So in the midst of this conversation, I looked up and there was a nonsensical sign on the, the wall and it, it was a placard and it said, closed, I have gone out to find myself. If I should arrive before I return, please hold me till I come back. That is so. 11 cool. years later, in April of uh, 13 years later, April of 2011, the whole family came and spent a week with us. And, uh, you know, it came to pass. So, and many people, will, I'm not talking about me, you know, I'm talking about experiences that many people have. Many people. Right over the years I know, you know, have wonderful memories involving nonsense, how nonsense had a spiritual meaning to them. Yeah. Yes, that saying and just how you all came back together. I mean, that's just another, just such a profound, you know, we could call it synchronicity or we could call it God and your personal relationship. Yeah, it's exactly. Working. Yeah, I think that God sometimes talks to us in nonsense. Yep, in order to get our attention. Mm -hmm, that's right. Absolutely. 
So what is your website, Dr. Moody, where people can reach you? We are at www.lifeafterlife.com. All right. Just As it should be. From people. Yeah. Yes. Um, so get in touch and let me know if, you, if you're interested in reading the book, how you like the book. I just always love to hear from people who are my readers and also. Um, and it's so great being with you again, Shelly, too. Absolutely. Dr. Moody, I just want to thank you for everything you've done, not only for me and your friendship has meant the world to me, but the me friendship too, that you've offered to everyone and you've given us the language by coining the term near-death experience. It's just helped so many people come to terms with something that they just simply couldn't have before. And so on behalf of humanity, you know, we just thank want to you. thank you. And That's we, just, so sweet. we love you dearly. And we love wish you, you continue. Sweetie happiness success. oh and by the way that sweetie is not chauvinistic i, I just <laughs> use that for my male friends too i just i caught myself there but you are a sweetie and i've called you that always it's nothing yes. male or female just i say the same thing to my male friends that's good. No, it's all good. This is this is political correctness and this. Canceling. Nah. I, I just can't get into it. So yeah, it's just wonderful. too bad about Dr. Seuss, too. I mean, that that one of the books they banned, which I can I've looked through. And I can't figure out why they but it's about it's called On Beyond Zebra. And it's uh, it's about it's a parody of alphabet books. Right. You know, go into any bookstore. There's hundreds of these ABC books. Right. And they're abecedarii, what those are called, those are very, they started as a spiritual modality of writing. There's mm -hmm. about a dozen abecedarii in the Old Testament alone, which is, you know, it goes from the beginning and the end of the alphabet. It has a different message on each one. And so Dr. Seuss's alphabet book is called On Beyond Zebra. And it goes on. And the, the main character at the first says, in the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts where your alphabet ends. And what Dr. Seuss is getting at there is that nonsense is a mind-transforming modality not just glossolalia and um, koans, but lots of other examples where you can actually um, use nonsense to put yourself into profound spiritual states of consciousness. Absolutely. I did some um, speaking in tongues for a while. I found it to be very, it kind of happened by accident, but yeah, it's very mind altering for sure. It is. And you don't have to be in a religious ceremony. I just started myself. You just let yourself go and, and you don't have to have an ecstatic state to start it. But right, once right. you do it, once you continue a few minutes, you just get into a really extraordinary altered state of consciousness. Yeah, you do. I went through a period yeah. where I just couldn't stop doing it. It was so relaxing. I think it it's is. a form of meditation in a sense. You know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can easily imagine that once you get into that state, you would be more receptive to a, a, you know, a communication from God. 
Yeah, I did that actually, now that I'm thinking about it before I, I had ended up getting um, interested in transcendental meditation, which is basically mm -hmm. reciting a, a mantra over and over mm -hmm. again. But the nonsense is even surpassing that because it's it just, you don't know, even know what it is. It's not making any sense. And it, it's so profound. It is. And, and, you know, it just, it's uh, an, just an indescribable, extraordinary state of consciousness. It was not just the Christian tradition that had glossolalia. There've been other religions that have used equivalent things as well, but it's, it's definitely a spiritual modality. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, friends at home, Dr. Moody has a new book that came out in 2020 called Making Sense of Nonsense. So I will definitely right. be giving you the links. It's out from my friends at Llewellyn Worldwide and you know how much I adore them. So we will have- Oh, aren't they the greatest well. folks? I just I think love Llewellyn them. so mind-making. They're all just so great. Yeah, they yeah. are. They're a huge blessing for everybody. Yeah. So Dr. Moody, you are a joy. I wish you, you and your too, family- Sharon happiness, peace, love, success, and continued um, fun on your life journey. It has just Thank been so amazing too. to connect with you again. And we will have the links. Friends, please pick up this book. You will love it. We will have the links below. And I will see you next time on the next episode right. of Healing Arts. Thank you. And thanks so much to everybody for listening in too. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, that was a lot to think about today. Raymond Moody is incredible. I just love him dearly and he's always got wonderful things to say. So I hope it gave you some food for thought to revisit his discussions about God is bigger than the Bible. And I hope you have an amazing week. I hope everything's going well with you. And just know if it isn't, just know that good things are on their way. Everything is in flux. And eventually things have to get straightened out. That is my belief. I have to hold on to that. And typically it happens. So no matter where you're at, I hope you're doing well. But just know that you're always in my thoughts and prayers. And I will look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of Healing Arts. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at Past Life Lady, or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady.